Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer or on the Montag Manufacturing website. Welcome to the Cover Crop Strategies podcast. I'm Sarah Hill, Associate Editor. Today, I'd like to introduce Wayne Fredericks, a strip tiller and cover crop grower from Osage, Iowa. Wayne will be discussing how he has reduced his fertilizer use by 30% by using cover crops. Welcome to the podcast, Wayne. Well, thank you, and uh, I'm happy to be here and uh, looking forward to our conversation this morning. Great. Well, to get us started, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and your farming operation. Well, we started uh, in 1973, so I'm an old timer, been around here a long time, graduated from Iowa State University and jumped right into agriculture. Uh, we farm up here about 15 miles south of the Minnesota border in northeast Iowa. So as a lot of my uh, friends in conservation say, you're, my God, you're just south of the North Pole, aren't you, when it comes to talking about cover crops and no-till. And, uh, and so uh, we've been able to make it work. And uh, so, you know, it's been a passion of mine to help fellow farmers and mentor them and help them get started doing the, the same things we are doing. We're a corn-soybean rotation, pretty much 50-50. We've been no-till soybeans since uh, 1991. We've been strip-till corn since 2001. Okay, great. So how long have you been using cover crops? We got started working with cover crops in the fall of 12. Uh, I was working with the Iowa Soybean Association's on-farm network doing replicated strip trials in our farms. And uh, so we were putting out strips just trying to see what would work, what would grow, how to plant it, how to terminate it, what effect it might have on yield, what species to plant. You know, all the questions everybody had in, uh, you know, that early time frame of cover crops and especially here in Iowa. And, uh, and so, you know, that's when we got started there. In 15, um, we went to uh, where we, that fall, we seeded 100% of our uh, ground going to soy to cover crops. And, and so then we got uh, moved into corn the, the following year on 100%. So we've been 100% cover crops in our operation now for uh, quite a period of time. That's great. And so um, talk a little bit about what your goals are for using cover crops in your operation. I want to be able to successfully implement a cover crop system that, you know, enhances our soil enhances the production capacity of the farms, is great for the environment, and maintains our profitability. I think it's as simple as that. It's just trying to find a, a system that works. We understand that across this country, there's extreme variations in soil and climate and crops, and it's not going to be the same everywhere. So these can be, you know, localized and uh, uh, and, and that's going to be the key to making it work is finding what works best for for you and your location. Wonderful. So talk a little bit more about how 
strip tilling and cover crops in combination have uh, have helped you reduce fertilizer use. I know right now with fertilizer costs being sky high, uh, that's a question that uh, a lot of growers are looking at is how can we reduce our um, our use of a, a very expensive input right now. We moved to grid sampling about the same time we moved into 100% cover crops. And uh, at the, and I work with a crop consultant out of Southern Minnesota, uh, utilizes a lot of University of Minnesota recommendations. And, and, we, and when we sit there and look at the, the fertilizer recommendations out of the U of M, in a banded fertility program, which our strip till would be, we try to put our P and K and some sulfur uh, down about six, seven inches deep when we strip till. And we put it there for two crops, the corn and the soy. We feel that, or University of Minnesota, I should say, feels that 70% of a broadcast rate will give you equal performance. Uh, and, and so we're looking at what's being cost effective. So. That's basically a 30% reduction in the amount of P and K. Take that and add a cover crop to the system. We know that, you know, we, cereal rise is a mainstay for our operation, that it gets down there roots 30, 40 inches deep pretty consistently. It's pulling nutrients, phosphorus and potash and nitrogen back up to the surface redeposit them in that six inch zone. And that's, that six inch zone is what we always continue to measure usually when we're doing soil sampling. So, you know, I just, you know, there's, there's nutrient value in that cover crop as it decomposes. And so we're kind of recycling some of those deep in the profile nutrients and bringing them back up to where they can be more readily available for crops. So I feel in the combination of the, of the strip till efficiency and then the cover crop there that We've got our bases covered on nutrients, and it's an easy place to save some money, and we got to credit that cover crop for doing some of that. Definitely. Something that I think our, our listeners will find really interesting is that you've been collecting soil data since the 1980s, and over time and, and looking at all of that data, what have you learned about soil health on your farm? It was interesting because back in... Uh, you know, the early 80s there, I was working with crop consultants then as well, and uh, they decided that we'd take organic matter samples on, on the farms that we were operating at that time, so we would know what herbicide rates to use. Other than that, we would file them away and not worry about it anymore. And, and we did that, and you know, it was like 2.3 to 3.3 on, on three main farms that we had at that time, and uh, very typical of what you see up here in this part of the country. And uh, the next decade, we adopted no-till and strip-till. 91 no-till, 2001 strip-till. And it wasn't until, like, I think, 2005 when we did another organic matter uh, solicitation when we were doing our soil testing. Now, we soil test all the time. That's, that's a common practice. But at that time, it wasn't common to ask for organic matter in that test. But we started to notice uh, an uphill trend in the organic matter. And... And then in 2007 and 11 and 15, we, we continually saw, you know, our organic matter starting to go up. And in fact, when we sit back and look at the big picture over that 25 year period of time that was covered in that, uh, we saw our organic matter average go up about two and a half percent or roughly one tenth of a percent per year on average, we saw the organic matter go up. Now, if you'd reach out and talk to uh, Iowa State or 
University of Illinois or University of Minnesota, they'd, they'd all tell you the same thing, that you could simply do this by discontinuing your full-width tillage. And, and that's what basically it was, because our cover cropping really didn't enter the picture until about 2015 to any great amount. So that was basically a tillage study. And, it, you know, it just showed that you, organic matter is, is very fragile and tillage is very destructive of organic matter. Uh, you can look across the country at other studies and see the same things, you know, the, the moral plots in, the, in um, Kentucky and, and, and the plots in, in Missouri all show that, you know, tillage has been destructive to the fact of, you know, there's 30 to 40 percent of the original parent uh, organic matter is all that's left in our soils, you know, in a tillage system. So see, it's, it's taken me 25 years to get half that loss back and, and uh, you know, we kind of call it regenerative in a way. And, and now that we know what we know cover crops, we could have cut that time dramatically by, you know, instituting a, a cover crop or a living crop in there that could capture carbon for another four months of a year, basically up in this climate. And that would have been huge in, in moving that, that uh, organic matter uh, up at a faster rate. Now, what is organic matter worth? You know, that's always the question that comes out and it was an interesting study that was done by the Iowa Division of NRCS back in, I think, 2012, 2013 was the date of that publication. But they actually sat down and tried to put a numerical value on, on organic matter. And, and they come out and they said that uh, it had a uh, water and, you know, or a crop production value, I should say, uh, uh, a water enhancement value of of $18 per 1%. And uh, to dive in that little deeper, I always remember some of the presentations that Dr. Jerry Hatfield from USDA, uh, ARS and Ames always used to say, and that was that we, we lost 20% of our crop 80% of the time, or 20% of our potential yield, pardon me, 80% of the time because of lack of plant available water. And uh, you know, that's that time frame in July, August here when the Midwest, when we're really packing the bushels on both corn and soybeans. And that's often a time when it's hot and gets dry. And so that's where that organic matter enters into the picture is that, you know, it predisposes soil to absorb more water, to hold more water, less water runs off. It makes more water available for the crop. And, and so uh, that's that $18 value that uh, comes from that enhanced water availability. And there's also a fertility value in that organic matter of about $11 for the NNP. Yeah, there's huge value to that uh, as, as we start to talk about it. So building organic matter is something surely we want to do on our farms because it, it, it's the bank that we can pull from to, to raise a good crop. I really like that metaphor of, of calling them like it like a bank. That's That's really great. Even after you added cover crops to the system in 2015, have your cash crops still remained competitive with yields? You know, we done strip trials there in 12, 13, 14. Didn't see much difference, much change. And uh, so, you know, it gave us confidence that we weren't, uh, you know, kicking ourselves in the shins, you know, for trying this. And uh, so, and then we basically moved into 100% beans one year and the next year, 100% on corn. And we haven't had any untreated strips since, but we have sit here and calculated our yields against county yields uh, ever since we went to no-till and strip-till. And so we've got that 
comparison over the years. And as I go back and try to do a deep dive into that, okay, we started cover crops at this time, what happened to our, our yield differential? And in corn, it's actually looks like we've gained maybe three to four bushels uh, versus the county yield on corn. Soybeans, we stayed right at steady with our differential in county yield. Uh, and of course, up in our county, we're seeing pretty rapid adoption of cover crops and uh, and uh, no-till beans. And so my comparative components on the other side of it are doing a lot of the same thing I am. So I wouldn't expect there to be a huge differential there. But no, yields have uh, not taken a hit because of it. Where I have seen yield hits, and not on my operation, but when I get involved working on a larger scale with you know, Iowa soybean and some of the studies and so forth that are going on, are the early adopters not doing things correctly, not maybe getting the right advice or, you know, plant, not planting deep enough, not getting out and checking behind the planter, a lot of things. Cover crop can have an effect upon on a lot of those things. And so it, it's a learning tool. And, uh, and, and we've seen, you know, uh, we got a five-year study at Iowa soybean that uh, went into building their economic uh, cover crop stimulator, simulator. And in there, we saw first year participants in that trial, uh, the majority of them lost you. And by year five, majority of them are, are seeing enhanced yield. So as they have learned to work with cover crops, uh, they've learned to, to make the right decisions to, to adopt and plant them right and fertilize them right and, and um, are making the system work successfully. We'll be right back to the podcast, but first I want to thank our sponsor. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer or on the Montag Manufacturing website. And now, back to the podcast. All right. How would you say that cover crops have helped improve water quality on your farm? Well, to be honest, the water quality thing was what drove me the quickest to 100% uh, adoption of cover crops. Uh, um, like I said, in 2016, during that planting year, I was uh, 100% cover crops in our soybeans, not yet corn. But that was also the year I was president of Iowa Soybean Association. That was the second year of the Des Moines Water Works lawsuit in Iowa, where they were claiming that uh, tile drainage systems in, in uh, Northwest Iowa were raising the nitrate level so high in the Raccoon River, and that's the river that they were pulling the drinking water from, uh, to a point that was costing them, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars, you know, to treat the water. And it was at the fault of the farmers. And at that same time, I had already been doing tile water analysis on our farms uh, under cover crops. And we had seen uh, significant nutrient reductions, especially of nitrate coming out of our tile from fields that had cover crops on. In fact, uh, we got a long-term study. Uh, we do have a nutrient bioreactor on one of our farms. And uh, prior to the establishment of the bioreactor, we had two years worth of uh, water sampling data showing 
nitrate levels that were roughly 14 parts per million of nitrate. And the drinking water standard is 10 for those listening. So that was the impetus of the lawsuit from the Des Moines Water Works was, you know, anything over 10, they had to treat it before they could disperse it to their, um, you know, users in the city. And so, you know, that's a common nitrate level for our soils in our area in a conventional farming operation, uh, either in a no-till or a strip-till operation, 13, 14 kind of was normal for our uh, our landscape. You know, you get west into some of the heavier soils in Iowa, and those numbers can even go up a little higher than that. But in the six years since we put that bioreactor in, and we, we, we analyzed that bioreactor four to five times a season, measuring the you know, the, the, the water coming in and the water going out to see the effectiveness of the bioreactor, just seeing the water coming in off of that field under a cover crop, we've calculated about a 35% drop in the nitrates compared to prior to the installation of that. You know, we're down, you know, around eight, you know, on our, our, our nitrate, average nitrate concentrations coming in. We're now down below that drinking water standard. And of course, once it goes through the bioreactor, it comes out considerably about 40% less than that. But so, and on another farm, it was real interesting. Uh, in 2017, it's when I planted green and uh, we had two tile that were uh, draining into Rock Creek. Uh, Rock Creek is our watershed and eventually ended up being in the Cedar River, which is a tributary of the Mississippi. But uh, Oh, he had two tile samples there taken mid-June. It was like 3.22 and 3.46 milliliters per in, uh, grams of nitrate. And I reached out to the sampling team that was doing the analysis, and I said, do you happen to know what Rock Creek is? And they said, yes, it's right at 10. And it was a real aha moment to me because at that time, I was, like I said, I was president of Iowa Soybean. I was actually making drinking water, the river cleaner with my tile drainage water. And that was not the story that was happening across Iowa at that time. That was a very controversial lawsuit. It pitted rule against urban. And I just ultimately decided being in the leadership position I was that I was going to walk the talk and I was going to put cover crops on my land at 100% and figure out how to make them work. Whether they did or not, I was going to have to figure out how to make them work because I, I see this as something that... Uh, we as farmers will face continuously, and that is the threat of litigation from environmental groups that consistently measure our performance by what's happening in the Gulf of Mexico and that hypoxia zone. And so I've been a real advocate for, for cover crops. And, uh, and, and the main thing is figure out how to make them work so people can actually improve the environment and you know, still maintain their, their good production and their profits. That's amazing that you were making the water cleaner. That's that's really cool. So talk us through that process when you decided to go 100% cover crops on your farm. What was the process that you went through to accomplish that? We got a watershed group up here in Mitchell County. Uh, you know, after Iowa adopted its nutrient reduction strategy in 2013, Iowa soybean was doing watershed plans and uh, my Rock Creek watershed decided to participate in that process. I got a, a strong group of farmer leaders in conservation to be part of that advisory board for Rock Creek watershed. And we sat down and, and worked with our person from Iowa Soybean. And actually, we put together a very aggressive watershed plan, you know, watershed plan to meet the goals of 
of the Iowa plan. And of course, in that, we, we virtually got to have 100% cover crops in our watershed to meet that goal, to get that 43% reduction in nitrate and 29% reduction in phosphorus. And I, I would gladly say as of this past season, we're at 21% of our watershed. Uh, Rock Creek has cover crops on it. So we are slowly making strides, but that's considerably higher than the state is on a percentage basis. As an engaged group, we also had uh, we had a watershed, a staff person we hired. We put on meetings. We engaged in bringing speakers in. We wanted to make uh, a very educational process out of this, trying to help farmers learn. Uh, one of those uh, watershed uh, leaders eventually started a cover crop business, got a huge business going, doing a tremendous job. And he's continued to carry on the, the educational aspects of, of cover crops and, and how to make it work and, and work best. And as they built that uh, cover crop dealership, uh, they basically made it a one-stop shop. I mean, you can go there and you can get your cost share information and they can help help you make that application if you're eligible. They'll sit down and do your seeding plans and species selection and they will set up the, the flight plans and field plans for those of us that want to fly it on. And they'll set up the, the field plans and maps for those of us that want it drilled. And, and, and I think that's key. The easier we can make cover crops for farmers to adapt, uh, the quicker it's going to happen. And if it is extremely difficult for somebody to do it, it's not going to happen. So one of the keys, one of the things we're working on across the state and I think even across the nation is how can we make this uh, work better and easier. And, and of course, in that we learn, especially uh, planting corn into cereal rye, the, the how you, you know, move your nitrogen around, move it up earlier in the application. How do you get it close to the seed? and uh, different types of nitrogen and so forth. We're not about putting more nitrogen on out there. It's just the timing is different. Uh, so we can escape some of that early, early season uh, competition that the bacteria have for the nitrate at the same time the seed needs it. And uh, so we've been able to do it very well and successfully. And like I said, it's uh, find a manner, find somebody that's doing it right and, and ask a lot of questions. And uh, I think that's worked well for us. Fantastic. So talk a little bit about from the economic perspective, how have cover crops helped save you uh, money, equipment, time, fuel, um, all of those areas of savings? To look at a cover crop system, you got to start and look at your tillage system first. I say uh, it, it's really not a system that I think you're going to get a great benefit out if you're going to continue you know, your heavy tillage or your full width tillage to any extent. It's uh, uh, some people might argue with me, but I, I think if we're going to really talk about building soil health, soil biology, we need to graduate uh, away from intensive tillage as much as we can. And, and so that aspect alone was huge for me. I mean, even before the cover crops, you know, just the, you know, changing the no-till beans and strip-till corn, we saw on average a forty-four dollar equipment savings. You know that covered your, you know, your fuel and, and machinery repair and, and and that. And we saw a twenty-seven dollar labor savings because 
when you're not out there running equipment all the time, it doesn't take the labor. And, and so those, those two factors on equipment and labor were, were huge, you know. And then as we brought the cover crops in, you know, you sit there and you look at that initial cost of the cover crop and you, and you just say, well, you know, how do you mitigate that, you know, because it doesn't directly pay back. And, and so um, in my presentation, when we, when we do this in March, we're, I'm going to introduce the, the cover crop economic stimulator, simulator that Iowa soybean has developed in conjunction with uh, uh, NRCS to show you know, how we can calculate mitigation. And, you know, mitigation is the offset income that you got to, to apply against that cover crop. And you'd be surprised. It doesn't take a lot to, uh, to mitigate that cost of the cover crop and to make it into a profitable system. You know, you talk about anybody that does any grazing, that's got livestock, boy, that's an instant, uh, you know, saver in the, in the bucket. You know, we've got reclay croppers up here now that are you know, uh, they're, they're, they're no-tilling soybeans into cereal rye and then harvest the rye and then later the beans harvesting two crops. Talk about a tremendously lucrative program, but, you know, we need seed and we're going to need more of that type of uh, application to get the seed as if cover crops grow across the front. But, you know, we've got uh, carbon programs out there. We've got uh, uh, cover crop insurance credits available. Iowa five hours in the federal last year had five. I think that's going to continue. So you got a lot of those mitigation practices in there that help offset the cost of the cover crop to really pretty soon you find that the cover crop becomes profitable as well, especially when you bring in the fertilizer savings, as we talked about earlier in the discussion. I automatically credit my cover crop 20 pounds of in. You know, it's, uh, you know, the time we terminate it, uh, you know, that's got, we got 20 pounds of plant available and in there at that uh, knee high stage, you might say. It's another benefit to calculate in there. And in this high price nitrogen right now, we got to take, you know, every, every means we can. You know, it's not about always saving money and getting the maximum yield. It's also getting the you know, uh, maintaining a good environment out there and, and protecting our water sources and, and so forth. You know, we've got some, uh, uh, you know, I see some 300 bushel uh, projects going on up here. You know, it's heavy manure, heavy fertilizer, heavy fungicide, but I would hate to measure what's coming out of the tile lines on them farms, you know, so I know that, you know, without a cover crop, a lot of that's getting lost. And, uh, and that's been, Another aspect that some of our high yield corn producers look at is that I don't want to be short on end, but I don't also want to pollute. So I will for sure always have a cover crop following my corn to help pick up that nitrate that I didn't use and, and keep that back into an organic form or a form that can later be used to another crop. So um, kind of finding that sweet spot there with the nitrogen. Yes, it is. And we're learning. Uh, and uh, I mean, you take a cover crop that's 30, 40, 50 inches deep, it's, it's putting a lot of nutrients up there other than nitrogen as well. So we just want to put that back into use for our plant systems. For sure. So um, last question for you, uh, then we're going to have to wrap it up. Um, which cover crop species have you found to be most effective in your operation where you're a hundred percent cover crop using? Our base of our cover crops, always cereal rye. I, I want to have something there 
living green to plan in the following year. That's the only way that I can, number one, sequester the most amount of nutrients from going out my tile draining systems. It's also uh, one of the beneficial ways to reduce herbicide cost because if you get a vibrant cover crop out there, we can save, we figure $10 savings on herbicide programs versus those without. So that's another savings to attribute to the cover crop. But we are also trying to put some variety into our mixes. Uh, we've added some oats and kale to our uh, cover crop that we seed into the standing corn. And this last year we added camelina, winter camelina to the uh, cover crop we drilled behind soybeans uh, to our cereal rye mix. So we'll get a pollinator benefit out of that one as well. All right. Well, um. I have time for one more question. Uh, talk a little bit about how you go about terminating cover crops, especially uh, the cereal rye. We're far north in Iowa. Usually it doesn't get that tall. Uh, in fact, we usually need more growth. So uh, we're about when the soils fit, plant corn and or beans, we're, we're in there planting. And then we terminate after planting and usually prior to emergence. And we'll usually use Roundup or round up in a pre-emerge herbicide with that. If it's corn, we'll also combine UAN with that pass. So that's not an extra pass. And we're getting some broadcast UAN out there as well as banded UAN over the row uh, with our planner. Sounds great. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Wayne. I really appreciate uh, your time and uh, hearing you talk about cover crops. You most certainly are a cover crop advocate. Thank you. It's been enjoyable. If you'd like to hear more from Wayne about uh, his experiences with cover crops, make sure to join us for the National Cover Crops Summit on March 15th and 16th. You can register online for this free virtual event at CoverCropStrategies.com. Once again, I want to thank our sponsor. Montag Precision Metering Equipment is helping producers achieve their yield goals while saving on seed and input costs. For establishing cover crops, Montag's family of seed platform equipment adapts to a variety of major brand delivery systems that will conserve seed and nutrients along with soil and water. Explore new options for your production and conservation goals with your Montag dealer or on the Montag manufacturing website. For more information about all things cover crops, visit us online at covercropstrategies.com.